Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is female entrepreneur, musician, podcaster, and music business trainer, Bree Noble. But first of all, publishing is up by a lot. Yeah, the publishing business is doing pretty good. It's up by $1 billion since 2014. Now, 2014, it was only at about $2.1 billion, and that was the lowest it had been in quite a while. And wow, we're back up to $3.3 billion. Why do I bring that up? Well, a couple of reasons. Publishing business is obviously doing well, as is the recorded music business for the record labels. But publishing is doing a little better. And where does the money come? Well, the biggest growth area has been sync fees. Sync fees means the money for music that is synced to picture. doesn't matter whether it's commercials or films or television. Music publishers are making a lot more than record labels. Also, digital. There's a big difference there, too. Record labels make 86% of their money right now from digital sources. Only 33% for publishers. That's a big difference. Now, how about songwriters? Songwriters continue to have a problem with what they're making. And this is interesting, considering that the music publishers are actually doing fairly well. So why is there a big discrepancy? Well, 50% of the revenue that's coming in, of course, is going to the publishers, for the most part. Sometimes it's a little less, but by and large, it's 50% of the money coming in. And don't forget, there's such a thing as black box money. Black box money is money that can't find its way back to the original songwriters. That's because the metadata was entered incorrectly or any number of things. But basically, they just can't find the songwriter. So it goes into a big pool as a result. And what we're having here is songwriters that aren't really seeing that much of an increase while the music publishers are. So they're not taking it very well, obviously. We're not seeing any strikes or we're not seeing people taking to the streets over it. We're not seeing songwriters refuse to write, nothing like that. I think another problem here is the fact that there are so many writers on songs today that everybody's making a whole lot less. And we all know what it's like when all of a sudden half of our income goes to somebody else or we only get a third of what we're doing if there's three writers in a song. But now there are 10 writers in a song, 12 writers in a song. I even saw that there's one Kanye West song that had 22 writers. Now, a lot of this is cover your ass from the standpoint that if you're in the room and a song is being written in any way, that means even the beat is being written, you get a piece of it. And that's because nobody wants a lawsuit. And right now, lawsuits are not going the way that everyone anticipates. So many times, the underdog is the one that actually wins. So as a result, we're finding more and more people are being signed on as songwriters. And as a result, everybody's making a whole lot less except the publishers. So who knows if that'll change soon. But the whole publishing business for songwriters is different. And it changed big time when we got into streaming. And now as streaming evolves, as the digital music business evolves, as publishing evolves, songwriters are taking it on the chin once again. (music) 
If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, I'm sure by now you heard about the vault fire that happened on Universal Lot in 2008 that destroyed, well, depending who you talk to, anywhere between 100,000 and 500,000 master tapes. And this is only coming to light once more because of a very long and detailed article in the New York Times a couple weeks ago that really went into depth on what happened there. And essentially, the biggest problem that everyone had is there was... As far as anyone can tell, there was no accounting of what was lost. Everybody sort of knows, but not exactly, and that's why the master count varies so wildly. Well, you might think it's pretty bad, and in fact it is, but this has happened before. One time in particular at Atlantic Records, yes, the famous Atlantic Records, had a building where all their masters were kept burned down. Why did they put it in a building? Well, for one thing, masters were getting in the way in their offices. And people during the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s, didn't really treat master tapes the way they should have. And as a result, many were lost. Many were thrown in the trash. Sometimes it was left to an intern to straighten his place out. Well, the way they straighten it out, throw the tapes in the trash. So we all heard those stories, and believe it or not, many of them are true. Record labels have been changing things recently by storing everything in a place called Iron Mountain. It's a big former salt mine in Pennsylvania. It was originally developed primarily to house records for the government. Then their business model changed, and it was mostly for banks and financial institutions. And then they widened it to be for media companies as well. And that's where a lot of your digital masters are going these days. One of the big problems is that people don't actually know what's there. Because many times these things are mislabeled, and many times there are outtakes that people aren't aware of. And the only way you can find those is if somebody actually goes through and listens and knows what to look for. And that was the beauty of having a tape library and the fact that somebody could actually go through and figure these things out and find a box that said Chuck Berry and then have a listen to see exactly what was on there. And we found many, many gems as a result. I'm not going to find those anymore, at least from Universal. But that being said, in Iron Mountain, they have a different problem. The problem being that it costs money to actually go in there and find out what's going on. So in other words, the record label has to ask for a certain barcode, and it costs them money every time they request one. So the only time they're going to request something is if they know exactly what it is and exactly how they're going to use it. As a result, there's plenty of backups in there and plenty of masters, digital masters, and tape masters that probably no one is ever going to hear because they're not going to spend money to find out exactly what's on these tapes or digital masters. So the music industry has this problem still of storing masters. I would say that the best thing, especially now that we're in the digital age, record labels are always going to ask for a master multi-track and stereo you give it to them but you also keep a master of your own and now thankfully we're in the digital age so we can do that 
<laughs> and in fact, it's going to be an exact copy. So that's a good thing as long as you're aware of it and as long as you really take care of your masters. As Craig Anderton says, you never really have a master until it's backed up in two different places. So just remember that, back up everything you have and back it up again. My guest today is Bree Noble, who is a champion for women in music thanks to her female entrepreneur musician podcast and her female music academy. Bree quit her corporate job as a director of finance at a top 15 opera company to pursue a successful run as a touring singer-songwriter, where she won several songwriter and artist awards. She even sang the national anthem at Dodger Stadium. During her time as a musician, she founded an online radio station called Women of Substance Radio to promote quality female artists in all genres. That eventually led to her current Female Entrepreneur Musician podcast, where she teaches marketing and business strategies for musicians and conducts interviews with successful indie female artists and industry professionals. Bria has also created several online courses to help musicians learn to make a living from their music. Her most popular offering is an online training and mentoring community exclusively for female musicians called the Female Musician Academy. In the interview, we talked about why women musicians are treated differently from men, the progress that women have made in the industry, the one thing that every artist is looking for, and much, much more. Let's go back to the beginning. I know you're a musician first. Tell me all about that, how you got into the business and then transition to what you're doing today. Sure. So, I mean, like most people out there, I was singing for forever, you know, loved to sing, was never afraid to get up in front of people and sing. And so I got into music in high school, got super involved in everything I could, did a bunch of solo competitions, and I knew that was the direction I wanted to go. So I went to college and got a music degree, but I really had no idea how to make a career out of it. And it was just something that the college didn't teach me. And so I had all this desire, <clears throat> but I had no plan and no strategy or anything. So when I left school, luckily along the way, I had had this practical side that said, you know, hey, I like numbers. Maybe I should get a business degree as well, just in case. Um, not thinking that it would be a good idea to like know business because a music career is business. Like I did, I wasn't that advanced. I was just like, this is my fallback thing. So I got a degree in business, went and worked in the corporate world, and ended up working as a director of finance of an opera company. And so, you know, all this time, though, I was really wanting to perform. And I was trying, you know, kind of in the background on off hours on the weekends to be in these different bands and try to figure out where my place was in performing and just had really no idea what I was doing and thought that well, everybody else must know better than me. I don't know what I should be doing. And I'm sure that these people that run this band or this person that says that they're a publisher or a manager or whatever, they know better than I do. So I should just listen to them and let them take control. And that usually ended in disaster. Funny how that works. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. And so, um, and I was working at the opera and seeing all these opera singers out there living their dreams, you know, people from Europe coming and singing on our stage. And, and I'm like, man, you know, that's what I don't want to be an opera singer, but I want to be out there touring and performing, doing being a singer songwriter. And instead, I'm in this back office writing paychecks to these other artists that are doing that, you know. And so eventually just. The pain got too great, and I also had a baby, and so I was balancing all of that with working full-time, and I just said, you know, I'm just, 
I'm going to leave this job. I'm going to work part time. I'm going to raise my daughter and I'm going to have enough time to figure out how to build my music career if I do that. And so that's what I did. And, you know, all this like 10 years of me trying to figure everything out and thinking that everybody else knew better than I did. I finally realized, you know, all I'm doing as a musician is building a business. And if I think about it that way, and I take control of it as an entrepreneur, because I had gotten training in entrepreneurship in college, but I had always not thought of music as an entrepreneurial thing, because I thought that I needed to have a record label or a manager or a booking agent that just said, okay, now I will make your career for you. You know, I, I've decided that you're worthy and now I'm going to, you know, create this career for you. And finally, I decided, like, I don't need anyone to tell me I'm worthy except me and my potential fans. So I just started thinking like a business person and building things total grassroots, starting with friends and family and people at my church and, you know, people that I knew from the community and, you know, slowly but surely building a career, getting more gigs, going out there and, and booking mini tours and stuff just all on my own. And had I not figured out to kind of marry the ideas of business and music, I just would have been, I'd still be waiting. Like I'd still be waiting around to get discovered and for somebody to tell me that I could have a career and it probably would never happen because now I'm 47. And, you know, most of the time people say that you're, you know, the industry people say your career has passed you by if you're 30 and nothing's happened. So the fact of the matter is music is the ultimate entrepreneurship. Mm hmm. And it's not taught enough in schools, and this is on any level. It should be, and I think more and more that's starting to happen. But by and large, musicians have the same view that you just described, where they expect they're going to reach a level and there's going to be an agent or a manager or a record label that's going to say, okay, now we got it. You don't have to worry. Just go do your thing. And it doesn't work that way, especially these days. It doesn't work that way. I think I'm still so surprised that there are people out there with that viewpoint, but there are still a lot. You know, you and I have not gotten the, the gospel truth out to enough people yet, apparently, but there's still just so many people that think that that's, that's the path. And I do think that schools are getting better. You know, the more schools that adopt Ari Herstand's book for the new music business and, you know, are actually bringing in these resources that make sense for 2019 you know, the better. Of course, I went to school in the 90s, so it was still very much, and, and and pretty much my whole music career was focused on getting a classical education, which I'm very thankful for, but nobody even talked about what you do after you leave. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's the most important part, isn't it? Yeah. Well, okay. So then you decide that you're going to help people learn how to do this, but you're specializing in women more than anything, in helping women. So I understand that's obviously a big portion of the market, but why did you decide to go that way? Well, it happened extremely organically. It was that as I was performing out, I was finding that, number one, I was meeting a lot of really amazing female artists and wondering why I wasn't hearing them on the radio or you know, even on satellite radio as that was coming up at the time. And 
and I would listen to the radio. Like I love to listen to female artists and I would listen. And I'm like, how come there's only like one out of every 10 songs has a female artist? Um, Cause I was big into like Lilith fair and all of that stuff going on in the late nineties and early two thousands. And so I decided to develop a platform to help get the word out about these amazing female artists, which was called women of substance that I started in 2007 and it was an online radio station. And so between 2007 and 2015, I was just growing that as an online station. And eventually we became a podcast. And by the time I got to 2015, I had played thousands of female artists and I had them all on my email list. And I had talked to a lot of them and they had said things to me like, I just don't know how to get my music out there. I'm just waiting for a label to pick me up. But in the meantime, what do I do? Do I just keep creating more music? You know, and it just like broke my heart because their music was so good. Like I would, I, my whole thing with my radio station is I would try to put them alongside of label artists because on a radio station where I was playing, I was paying royalties. I could do that. And so I could put an indie artist and then I could pay, play Amy Winehouse. And then I could put an indie artist and I could play Sarah McLaughlin. And I just thought, you know, that is a way that you can, without hitting people over the head with it, show how good these indie artists are that they hold up against these other artists. So that was kind of my my focus with the radio station. And as I talked to more of these indie artists, I'm like, you guys are exactly where I was for those 10 years of total frustration and aimlessness. And so why don't I start a community and a training ground for you guys to, you know, get the help that you need. And so you don't have to make all the mistakes that I did when I was trying to figure it all out. And that was one of the things that really got me on track was finding a community of women that had done what I wanted to do. And they were, you know, out there touring and stuff. And I could ask questions and ask them, you know, well, how did you do this? And how did you get into this venue? And, you know, that kind of thing. And so I just decided to create this, um, this, training academy called the Female Musician Academy because I had all these females on my list anyway and I loved working with them and I wanted to elevate them. Do you think that females have a different set of problems in the music business? <laughs> I love this question. Okay, besides the fact that, yes, they don't get played as much and it's especially bad now, I think, but just in terms of business. You know, I mean, in terms of business, I'm not sure. I love this question and I hate this question because yeah. I'm always so worried I'm going to offend people. But I mean, I guess that's just part of having an opinion. So I do think that that women sometimes suffer from um, self-confidence issues, maybe because, and I know I've been there, I, You you've been in a band with men and they treat you a certain way or they marginalize you or you know and, and it's happened to a lot of us and I'm sure there's men out there that have felt marginalized so I'm not trying to say that this is a women's only problem but I do think that women tend to take it to heart like we really deeply feel things like that and sometimes it can just completely paralyze you where it's like I just don't you know somebody said something to me five years ago and you know now I just don't have the confidence to get on stage because all I can think of is what that person said to me. You know, we just really feel that very deeply. So I think that's, that's an important thing about having a community where we can talk about that. And like, you can know that you're not the only one that's had that happen to you. 
and you can get that kind of support that you need to know that you're not alone, that's already, it's so much more empowering to just know that you're not the only one that's experienced that. And by hearing other people's stories, then you can be like, you know, hey, this thing's really not, I've made a huge mountain out of this molehill, you know, and I can, I can move on. You know, what I've noticed from female engineers and assistants that I've worked with, there are some that are completely seamless. It doesn't matter, male, female, it doesn't matter. Their presence is equal. But there are others, and I found this mostly with females, where they overcompensated for, I always thought it was the lack of self-confidence, which made it even worse because they were overcompensating. Mm. And as a result, they were treated differently because of that, where, again, others, they fit in just fine. I guess that's just part of the fact that women are treated differently, regardless. It doesn't matter what the business is, really. Yeah, and I think sometimes, you know, in order to, like you said, overcompensating or to, to prove that you are, you know, really worthy of what you have, you go over and above and sometimes that can be come across as like harsh or just like way too egotistical or something because we feel like there's this big gap that we're trying to to bridge and so I think it's a hard place to be in for women because you know either we they call us weak or they call us a b-i-t-c-h so you know what I mean yeah you're right so it's a hard one but I, I think it's better I mean I think it's so much better then when I started in 2007, I just, I feel like there's so much more awareness and conversation and even the whole, you know, Me Too movement. There's so much that has come out in support of women since I started my whole movement that just makes me really, really optimistic. Well, that's good to hear because sometimes it appears that things are falling backwards. Mm. At least... From what you read in the news, now, again, I haven't been out in the road for a long, long time or even on that part of the business for a long time. It's from mostly the studio for me. But I know that there are more female engineers and more assistants than there used to be. And I do know that where I was talking about the overcompensation, I see less of that mm-hmm. these days. So, yeah, I guess when you think about it, there has been some progress in that. I just think the the more that people are talking about it in the media, the better it is. Because I think the inequality is the same as it always has been. I think that, I mean, I think it's getting better, but I think the fact that people are now feeling comfortable about talking about these things and the things, you know, that the, where they felt that they've been marginalized or mistreated, I think that's already a big step because you know, just a handful of years ago, you wouldn't have been able to get that story out into the media. I looked at your website. You have a lot of different programs. Can you describe them and what they're for? Sure. I mean, I have um, the Female Musician Academy. That is my flagship membership for female musicians that includes training and group coaching and community. And then um, we have, I partner with my friend Steve Palfreeman of the Music Launch Hub once a year, and we do the Profitable Musician Summit, which is not just for females, it's for everyone. And it's an, it's an online summit that usually lasts about 10 days, where we bring in all kinds of music industry experts and, and musicians 
that are being successful in certain aspects of the business. And it's all about making musicians profitable. And so that's kind of my other major thing that I do. I have a few standalone courses, but, you know, if you come in the academy, you get all that usually. Um, and then I have a ton of free content. You know, I've got stuff on my YouTube channel and my podcast, The Female Entrepreneur Musician. That was, you know, four, that's been four years since I started that. So, um, yeah, just a lot of different ways that I try to help musicians become you know, my focuses really are very much like helping them make money because I want them to be able to to be able to continue doing what they love. And it's not about like, oh, you know, I'm so focused on money and it's all about how much money you can make. It's not about that. It's about perpetuating your passion and your craft. And you can't do that without money. So even if you're a hobbyist, I want you to figure out how to make some money so you can keep doing what you want to do and keep funding these passion projects. And then my other kind of big focus is um, goal setting and productivity and helping musicians become more effective with their time. I know a lot of you guys have full-time jobs or part-time jobs or you have kids or you're a lot of people I know are having to, you know, deal with an elderly parent and that's like a part-time job. And so I know you're juggling a lot and I want to make sure that you're utilizing the time that you do have in the most effective way so you can actually get, you know, move forward on your music goals. So that's another big passion of mine. Yeah. You know, making money is a big deal. I forget who said it, but it's really true that just making money is the new success. The goalpost has changed somewhat these days, which I think is healthy because, you know, people think of stardom and really if you're thinking of fame and stardom, maybe you're not in the right business. <laughs> you know? It's all changed a little bit. And I think for the better, uh, we all want to make some dough from what we're doing. It doesn't even have to be a lot just to get paid for doing it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people that I work with, they just want to feel valued, you know, and, and getting money is one way to feel valued and, you know, for what they do and what they offer the world through their music and their message and, you know, their mission of their music business. And, you know, many of them, they don't, they don't care about getting rich. They don't care about being famous. They just want to make an impact and they can do that even in just their local area. They don't have to be international or anything. They just want to make a difference. Now, here's a question for you. And I can say that I don't have an idea. Most of my followers and, and the people that consume my courses are male, by and large. There are some female, but it's mostly male. Do you find that females are more business-oriented once you show them the tools? I don't think so. I think sometimes they're a little more receptive to it because maybe they hadn't, I don't know. I'm not sure that they're more, I definitely think that a lot of times the males that I deal with are, are not thinking about it as a business and, you know, maybe it's just that they haven't gotten the training that they need. I mean, people that come to me, luckily they've probably already consumed a little bit of my content. And so if they don't like the idea that they have to be thinking about their career as a business at all, they probably just turn it off and go somewhere else because I'm pretty upfront about that. 
But I do have many males that come to me and say like, oh, is it okay if I'm on your list because I really like learning from you? And absolutely it is. Okay. That being said, I'm curious if it works the same way with you, but sometimes I'm pretty amazed the fact that someone will pay some money and not do the work. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. In fact, I, I'm so passionate about, <clears throat> about being committed to my students that it really frustrates me when they're not committed to the process. And so I actually just recently decided to make a change in my academy. Instead of allowing a monthly membership, I'm making it that you have to make a year-long commitment. Now, you can still pay a monthly price, but it's more like a payment plan because I want people that are committed to the process. You cannot advance your career if you come in for two months, do a few things, and then leave. You may as well not have done anything at all, you know, because it takes a while to to really sink in and to really, you know, get the things moving. Like, you can't build a fan base in two months. So, and, and I'm curious what you think about that, too, because I think you have a membership, right? I do, yes. Mine is somewhat different. It was similar to yours at one point in time, where I switched over completely to membership, and they got everything that I did. And it didn't work as well for me anyway and and for my students. So now I have a separate program that has different content and it's custom content that happens every month that's Ah. membership. But even there, sometimes I'm amazed. It's like, here's this webinar just for you and (laughs) I don't see you here, you know, uh, or I don't see as many people as I would have expected. Now, that being said, you probably know this as well. Timing is really difficult when you're doing something like this when you have students from all over the world. I know, I know. But, you know, people from UK and Australia and the US and Canada is hard. Man, I've tried every time you can think of, and I don't think I've come up with a good compromise yet. So finally I decided, well, I'm going to do what's easiest for me. (laughs) No, there really isn't. I mean, what I'm doing now is that I've I've got a group coaching call every week. And one of the weeks, I made sure to make it at a time that I knew people from Australia could come and people that worked in the U.S. Because a lot of my people, they want to come at noon Eastern and a lot, you know, people that can't work, that work can't come. So I've got one of my times. So there really is no excuse if you want to come to the calls that you can't come to one of them a month. (laughs) Yeah. Is there one thing that you find that women don't know or understand about the music business? Hmm. Hmm, that's interesting. I, I don't know if it's about women, but I just think that there's the one of the biggest things that I see still is that everybody just wants a manager. And, you know, this is something that I, I love listening to Rick Barker talk about this because he's been a manager. Like, he's like, people think a manager is one thing, but they're not you know, they're not what people think that a manager is just going to take all of the admin off of their shoulders because they don't want to do any of that and all the, you know, the business stuff. And that's not really what a manager does, you know. So I think that's the big, the biggest one that I see is that people think, well, if I get big enough, then I don't have to do any of this admin stuff. And yeah, you can hire an assistant, but you still have to think like what I say is that, you know, the CEO of your musician business and people are quite resistant to that idea of being the CEO of anything because, you know, right now they're just this musician trying to make some money. 
But if you really build your music career like a business, eventually you will have some people working for you, hopefully. And they'll be doing some of the admin stuff, but you still have to be the leader. You still have to understand how all that stuff works and you have to make sure they're doing it right. And, you know, even if you hire an accountant because you don't want to do your own money management, you still have to be able to know what they're doing so you don't lose your shirt. So I think the biggest thing is that they don't think that they have to think like a business owner. And an entrepreneur and a business owner is a little bit different because you can be an entrepreneur at a pretty low level and, you know, be scrappy and, you know, have a lot of great ideas and, you know, try things and everything. That's really entrepreneurial. But when you get to the point where you have people working for you, you have to put on that leadership hat. And sometimes that means being a little less entrepreneurial sometimes because you need to think more on the managerial side or the more practical side instead of being totally focused on like this big picture stuff. Yeah, I think people want to do the fun stuff in being an artist and that's that's creating and and playing, but there comes a point in time where you have to do more than that if you're going to make money doing this. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, even a lot of them don't like to do the marketing side, right? But if you don't, no one will hear your music, so why even create it? And it's just like my business. Like I, I like to spend all my days just, you know, training the musicians in my academy and making new courses for them. And that would be awesome. But then I would never get any new members because I'm not marketing it at all. And, you know, it would just die. Funny you should mention, I was going to bring that up. It's the same thing for me. It's like, I don't want to do that. But at a certain point, I mean, once I get into it, it's okay. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's just making that transition. It's like, oh, okay. I yeah, actually, really, I really like it. I like the marketing, but I do feel like sometimes it's so it's so time consuming, and I'd rather be spending my time helping my members because that's my greatest desire. But I have to realize that the marketing is helping them. It's helping my future members because otherwise they wouldn't have know to to come here and and get this thing that's going to help them. Bree, what's the one thing that maybe people don't know about what you do or misunderstand what you do? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um. Or do they get it right off, which is great? I, I think what they don't get, like whenever I talk about the Academy, I always talk about how the, you know, our community, the support of our community is priceless and it's hard to explain how valuable that is. And I think that's what they don't get. It, if they're really committed to a community, it can raise the level of everything that they do just because they've got this support and we're all supporting each other. And I think that's what people don't, don't get about the value of what I do in creating a community for women because maybe they just think, well, I just want to come and get the information and then leave. And the people that really, you know, dived into the community and really gotten to know each other and show up for the calls and everything like they would never want to leave. They don't. They buy the lifetime membership because they don't want to leave because whenever they're feeling down about their music career, which is probably like once a day, you know, for, for the average artist, there's always something that's frustrating. They have a place to turn that will make sure that they don't quit. Is your community a Facebook group? It is. It's a Facebook group. And then we have these calls once a week that are on Zoom. So that's really the coolest part is that we get to meet each other in person, virtually. Yeah. 
Tell me about your podcast. How did that get started? Um, so the, the Female Entrepreneur Musician podcast started in 2015. Um, it was really because I had in my mind that I was going to start the academy and I wanted to you know, start creating content that would you know, kind of let people know where I'm at and, and what I was planning to do and how I could help them. And I also wanted to highlight female artists that were really succeeding in certain areas of their career that were indie artists. So I'd done, I mean, it's probably at least 100 interviews on there with female indie artists and female industry people talking about, you know, what they found the most successful. And like the most popular question that I asked on there is kind of back to what I was just talking about with community and like, you know, is there a time that you've ever felt like you were, you wanted to give up and how did you push through that and what did you learn? And like so many of them were like, yeah, pretty much every day <laughs> I feel like I want to give up, but I, I keep going because of X, you know, and this is, you know, here's a, a story. I love hearing their stories of when they almost gave up or some people it's like, I gave up, I gave up for a year, but then this happened and, you know, I got back into it because I just couldn't let it go that kind of thing. So I just think that having those interviews has been so inspiring for my community to to really see that there are people out there being successful with it and that success has many different forms. Well, let me turn that back on you. Has there ever been a point where you wanted to give up or you gave up and pushed through it? <laughs> I mean, you know, in my music career, I definitely gave up after I had a really bad a difficult experience with a band that I was in um, and we broke up in a really bad way. And I was just so, so done. Like I was just, and, and then I was also having a baby at that time. So I'd say I gave up for, you know, once I had the baby, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to be too busy with this. There's just no way I have time to do music. And after about six weeks, I'm like, I am so bored <laughs> and I miss my music, you know? And so that was when I started the path to figuring out how I could quit my job and, and start doing music again. So I definitely gave up multiple times music wise throughout that whole period where I was trying to find a band to be in that would, you know, catapult my career or whatever, you know, back in the days when I thought what I wanted was fame and fortune. Um, my business career, you know, it's, it's, it grew so organically starting in 2007 with the radio station and it was so on the side at first and it grew like at the perfect pace based upon you know me having kids and and raising them and doing this on the side and I never felt like I wanted to give up with this venture that I'm on now because of the fact that it it grew at a normal pace and I never felt totally overwhelmed now there's definitely been times when it's like you know, I tried to market something a certain way and it didn't work. <laughs> and then I would be frustrated for a while and I'd be like, oh, I'm just going to try a different way, you know? Yeah. That's the right approach, isn't it? <laughs> when it's all said and done, it's okay to fail. It's just that you can't get so down about it that you stop. Yeah. No, I mean, for me, I know that I'm not a person that gets depressed, but every once in a while. So I know that I just need a reset. So it's like, I'll go, you know, have a margarita, sit in the backyard and sulk for a while, go to sleep and sleep for 12 hours, get up the next morning and I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know the feeling. But you have to know what it is that, that helps you reset your mind. 
Yeah, there are times for me where I, everything kind of locks up and it used to worry me and it doesn't anymore because I know it's fleeting and it will go away probably by tomorrow. So it doesn't bother me so much anymore. Yeah, I've also learned the other thing that has almost happened to me is is the opposite side, which is burnout. Like I've just worked so hard on this thing. And then one day I'm just like, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't, I, thinking about doing this makes you want to throw up. You know what I mean? Like you to this point. And so I've learned how to, how to watch myself and see if I'm getting there before I get there and then take measures. And I, I did a podcast about this because it was, I think it was after my first summit. I was just like so done. And, and I knew I wasn't at burnout yet, but I was really close. And so, you know, I know artists go through this too. So I did a whole podcast about like trying to see the signs that you're approaching burnout and how you can can head it off before, you know, it, it happens. You just brought up the summit. Tell me more about that. You said it's over 10 days and it's online. How does that break down? Sure. So um, it is all interviews with uh, industry experts and we try to group them around a theme for each day. And we have anywhere from like three to five interviews that are released every day and then they are able, people are able to watch them for 48 hours for free. And so this happens over 10 days. So we had a total this year of 33 interviews. The previous year we had 40 interviews um, and they're all around a theme. So our first year was on income streams. So we just had all these different people talking about 33 different income streams. And then this last year we were focusing on, kind of your your bottom line like both sides of the equation so we talked about how can you raise your income and also decrease your expenses because i think what happens with musicians is like we focus so much on raising the income and then on the expense side we don't pay attention as much and like money just kind of falls away without us realizing it you know i spent too much on this tour i spent too much on you know and i did I was so focused on the income side that I didn't notice. Um, or I, you know, I, I talked myself into buying certain, you know, pieces of equipment that I quote needed, you know, and yeah. then pretty soon, like all my income that I made all year from music is gone. So that was kind of the focus this year. And then we always offer the all access pass. So people can um, pay to have access to all the interviews for life. And they're all video interviews, audio versions and then like we this year we made this amazing something like 140 page um companion guide with oh. all the you know inf basically boiling down all the information from each interview into some really well organized notes and um and and free free things from from the different speakers and stuff so i do that with steve pal freeman of the music launch hub and he and I have partnered on this for the past two years. So hopefully if the demand is there, we will do it again next year. It's a great idea, Brie. Definitely. Yeah. It's a lot of work though. Let me tell you. And I'm the one doing all the 33 interviews and, um, you know, doing all the marketing and stuff. And then Steve's all the one making sure it all works correctly in the background. Well, good. You need that. That's for sure. Yes. Yes. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Oh, um, you know, it's really hard for me to choose one. So I'd say the biggest one actually would be 
if you really believe in what you're doing, don't give up. And that sounds really like trite and lame, but I always heard that, you know, it's something like at least 80 to 90% of entrepreneurs that go into business will fail within the first two years. And I always was just like, well, then I'm just going to hang in there longer than that. I'm just going to keep going because what if I stopped and then tomorrow I was going to have this huge breakthrough? You know, how would I know? And so that's kind of what's kept me doing this all this time, even though, you know, maybe the growth was not explosive like I would have liked. I mean, wouldn't we all like that? Um, It's probably good that it wasn't because I don't know if I could have handled it, but I... I just think sticking to my plan and not giving up, even though, you know, there's serious bumps in the road. I just always had my eye on the future prize and always thought, I don't want to be one of those 80 to 90% that quit. All I need to do is just be that other percentage and I'll be fine. You can find out more about Bree and her podcast in Academy at BreeNoble.com. That's BreeNoble.com. Dot com b-r-e-e-n-o-b-l-e all one word dot com thanks for listening and being in my inner circle remember if you have any questions or comments you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com to listen to the episodes of bobby osinski's inner circle go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it on itunes stitcher mixcloud google play google podcasts spotify Deezer, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.